Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. What is going on, everyone? And welcome back to the channel. And welcome to episode four in the Kevin in a Big Rig saga. In the last episode, we heard all about Kevin driving 400 miles in the wrong way somehow and getting Opie and himself completely lost. And at the start of this one, we get a little bit of context as to why, perhaps, Kevin is making such crazy decisions. Now, if you haven't yet seen any of this story and you have no idea what I'm talking about, the links to watch every episode so far are down below. But without further ado, let's get into episode four. Kevin in a Big Rig, part five, shutdown. Backstory. This story takes place only a few days after the events in part four. Kevin and I were heading towards Salt Lake City, but the winter weather that had been slowly ramping up for the past month was only getting worse. We'd been fortunate up to this point that the snow and ice hadn't caused any delays, but luck was about to run out. This story begins one night in North Platte, Nebraska, on Interstate 80. Kevin, having driven the day shift, had parked the truck and we changed places. Believe it or not, and I sure as heck didn't, Kevin had actually learned from me and decided to not only stop in a safe place, but at our designated fuel stop. That meant that we could get food, fuel, and do a truck inspection. This was one of the few times Kevin made a rational decision. While he went into the truck stop, I refueled and inspected the truck. After making sure it was in good shape, I take a look at the weather. A massive winter storm had been building up and all predictions put it and us on a collision course. The company's safety department had sent several weather alerts and issued a few restrictions. My personal rule is that shutting down early is more preferable to shutting down too late. I discovered that Wyoming, the next state we were to cross into, was taking a serious pounding from the storm and several accidents were already being reported. Thank God it was my shift this time, or Kevin would have wadded the truck and us into a tight little ball in a ditch. I knew we wouldn't make much progress, but since the roads were still dry and the snow wasn't yet falling, I figured I'd be able to make it close to Wyoming before shutting down, let the storm pass, and continue on once the roads were clear. I'd driven this route many times by this point, and I knew the best places to be stuck. I set the GPS to take us to a truck stop just past the Wyoming state line, go inside for a quick bite, and we head out. It wasn't long before the leading edge of the storm had caught us. The further along I drove, the worse the weather deteriorated. Snow flurries melted on the highway, only to be frozen by the rapidly decreasing temperature, and larger, heavier snow began sticking to the road. In typical fashion for the safety department, their weather alerts were about two hours behind, and where they'd issued orders to slow down or shut down were for areas well inside the storm. According to them, we could drive the speed limit and they wouldn't say anything. Fortunately, I knew better than to trust the judgment of somebody nearly a thousand miles away about the weather I was looking at through the windshield. I'd made it about a hundred miles when conditions forced my hand. I'd already had to reduce speed to barely creeping and the road was invisible beneath the snow. After watching another truck, who was driving way too fast, lose control and end up in the ditch, I make the call to shut down. I pull into a rather large truck stop not far from the Wyoming state line. By this point, the snow was so deep, the trailer bumper was acting like a snowplow and the tires were having trouble gaining traction. I finally get the truck parked and tell dispatch we're shut down. As I set the truck's idle control system, Kevin wakes up and asks, Are we still in Indiana? 
In case you're not familiar with US geography, Indiana is a very long way from Wyoming. We hadn't been there for days. We're in big spring and we're shut down. We're gonna be here for a while, I tell him. Did safety tell us too? I made the call. It's gotten pretty bad. He mumbles that he will get us going once his 10 hour break is up, but I know that safety will issue a shutdown, albeit later than it should be. I grab a snack, pull the bunk privacy curtains closed, and I settle in. I decide to make use of the downtime to work on Operation Ditch the Dipshits. For the past couple of days, I've been writing down everything I could remember since day one with this Kevin. I jot down everything, major and minor, along with dates, times, and locations. Every missed turn, unnecessary detour, and violation this Kevin had made goes on the list. My plan was to copy it all to email, but I wanted to make sure that nothing was left out. While Kevin was asleep, I decided to go through the truck's computer records. I start by going through Kevin's hours of service log. This is a legally required record that shows what a driver does every single day. Since drivers can only drive a set number of hours per day, any violation would show on the log. Best of all, these computer logs couldn't be tampered with. Every time he drove longer than he should have, I made a note. The computer also keeps a record of abnormal truck activities. One of these is called hard braking events. A hard braking event is, as the name suggests, in an instance where the truck experiences excessive braking. Remember how I said that he was heavy on the brakes? Well, the computer agreed. There were dozens, if not hundreds, of these records filed during his drive shifts. To be clear, it takes a very hard brake check to trip on one of these events. I use my phone to snap a quick photo of the computer screen. I make my notes and I climb back into my bunk for the rest of the night. The next morning, I wake up and go to the front of the cab and check the computer for messages. As I predicted, safety had issued a mandatory shutdown for all trucks in our area. Just as well, otherwise I'd have to duct tape Kevin to his bunk to keep him from trying to leave. The storm was still dumping snow and the paved parking lot of the truck stop is packed full of trucks and the interstate visible from our parking spot is dead quiet. No one was going anywhere. Despite this, I breathe a sigh of relief. Kevin might be stupid, but his sycophant attitude meant that he wouldn't dare defy the company. We were safe for the time being. Kevin wakes up a little while later. Are we still in Illinois? He asks. No, I reply cautiously. We're in Nebraska close to wyoming safety has us shut down oh he replies and goes back to the bunk it was then that i knew something about kevin was off more so than i thought twice in less than 12 hours he's forgotten where we are indiana and illinois are behind us by a few days at this point there's no way he could be that confused i try to put it out of my mind for the time being and decide to brave the weather in the interest of breakfast i grab some food and coffee and check the weather conditions to the west wyoming dot had shut down the entire interstate and over 200 accidents have been reported in the past 24 hours i talked to a few drivers who had come in from the west and their accounts match the reports it's pretty clear that we're not going anywhere soon after about an hour i head back out to the truck and decide to catch up on some sleep. Kevin is fully awake at this point, messing around with the computer. As I climb inside, he asks, are we still in Illinois? What? He still doesn't know where we are? No, I explain. We're in Nebraska. We got here last night. We've not been in Illinois for three days. You don't remember? This was the question that answered far more than I thought. Kevin explained to me that about a year before, He'd been involved in a serious car accident, one of many. Yeah, why does that not surprise me? 
According to him, he ran off the road at a high speed. He was hospitalized with a shattered leg, that's his bad leg now, and was in a coma for 21 days. His doctors told him that being in a coma for that long would likely cause some brain damage, and it had. He had difficulty with his short-term memory and would literally forget something he did five minutes before. This wasn't entirely new to me as he had told this story to me before. In fact, he told me countless times over the past two months and it was always the same. Bad car accident, 21-day coma and busted leg. Right, I reply. Well, the weather is pretty bad, so get comfortable. We're gonna be here for a while. I then climb back into my bunk. Kevin, citing his bad leg, wants to try and find a parking spot closer to the store. But I tell him the lot is completely full, and if he moves the truck, we could lose this spot. Reluctantly, he decides to stay put. In my bunk, I go over Kevin's story. A 21-day coma, short-term memory loss, numerous car accidents. If I was asked to pick one person to deny a CDL, it would be Kevin. And not because of the hell I'd already been through because of him. Driving a truck is dangerous at the best of times. Add a brain-damaged driver and the risk obviously increases exponentially. I knew that this company literally hired anyone who gave them a phone call. But what doctor in his right mind would grant someone with brain damage a DOT medical card? I pull out my notes and I jot down Kevin's story as he told it. Yeah, OP, at this point, I couldn't agree more. This all seems now absolutely insane. And it does, I guess a little bit, explain Kevin's actions. Later that day, Kevin wakes up from a nap. I'm in my bunk and he asks me again, are we in Illinois? I sigh, defeated. No, Kevin, we're in Nebraska. You've asked me that three times already. Oh, well, I have bad short-term memory. See, I was in a car wreck and... And he repeats the same story again, practically word for word. Did safety shut us down? He asked. Yes, so did YDOT, I explain. Wyoming DOT, that is. Oh, okay. He goes quiet again. We end up stuck for two full days waiting for the road conditions to clear. By late morning on the third day, we receive word that the road conditions have improved to the point where we can proceed. By that point, Kevin had repeated his story another three times, each time completely unaware that he'd told it earlier. By this point, I've decided there is something seriously wrong with this guy and he is a danger to himself and anyone sharing a highway with him. I didn't know if I can get him off the road at that point, but I knew I could get reassigned. Our unexpected downtime had given me time to work out my exit strategy. I volunteered to take the first shift. I figure if the roads are iffy, I have the better chance of getting through it safely. This was a good call on my part, as I counted no fewer than 20 accident sites in the first 50 miles. Many of these still hadn't been cleared and the vehicles were left in the ditch or median. I managed to get a good distance into Wyoming before needing to swap with Kevin. The weather had broken and everything between us and Salt Lake City was clear. As Kevin started his shift, everything that occurred during our shutdown replayed in my mind. The more I thought about it, the more it bothered me. Kevin wasn't just stupid, he was a ticking time bomb. It was time to get as far away from him as I could. Before I went to sleep, I take out my notes and cell phone and begin composing an email. I address it to my fleet manager and I CC the safety director. It would take a while to finish as I planned to make sure they knew everything that I had seen and experienced over the past two months. Given the nature of corporate politics, I expected to encounter some resistance and being ignored, but that was fine. It would only make the situation worse for them in the long run. And with that, part five comes to an end. 
I know there wasn't much in the way of Kevin type behavior in this one, but I hope that you at least have a better idea of the kind of person Kevin was. In the next episode, which we're about to get into, Kevin's terrible driving will do actual damage to the truck and my plan to get rid of him will be fleshed out. Okay, so there we go for part five in this one. I'm not really sure how to feel, guys, and comment down below if you agree with me, but I can't help but feel at this point a little bit sorry for Kevin. There's no way he should ever be in this job. I mean, OP said it himself. I have no idea how he's been allowed this role. As OP said, if there was one person that you would never want doing this job, it would be Kevin based on everything that's happened and the way he's acted in the past and the things that have happened to him and also how he is now behind the wheel. I don't get it. Ultimately, I don't know if you can really blame Kevin that much for these things. I mean, who knows what happened with the car crash, but he was in a coma for 21 days. I mean, that's mental and he still has serious issues as a result of that, which aren't his fault. I mean, come on, this is crazy. Why is he allowed to do this? And also, why is it up to OP to show the company that Kevin is not in a fit state to be driving this truck and is endangering, as I said at the end of last episode, himself, OP, and every other driver on the road. But realistically, at this point, I now am very, very keen for OP to get Kevin sacked as quickly as possible for everyone's good. But that is not where we're going to end today's episode. We're actually going to get straight into part six of this one, as OP said. Here we go. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Okay then, so now moving in to Kevin in a Big Rig Part 6, Breakdown. Backstory. This story takes place about a week after the events of Part 5. Kevin and I made our delivery in Salt Lake City without incident and took another load north to Seattle. We'd picked up another load that was bound for the East Coast when yet another disaster struck. I'd made the initial pickup in Renton and headed east on Interstate 90. Since I'd driven half the night before the pickup and into mid-morning, my drive time for the day expired around Tanner, Washington, and Kevin and I switched out. Ahead of us lay barren and mountainous terrain and nearly 3,000 miles of highway across the northern states of the lower 48. Combine that with the ever-threatening winter storms, Kevin's horrible driving skills, and a dwindling supply of tolerance on my part, I was beginning to wonder if Kevin would kill us both before I could get rid of him. At the end of my drive shifts each day, I'd been religiously copying the information from the notes I had taken into an email on my phone. I addressed it to my fleet manager and the company's safety director. Using my most professional and courteous language, I outlined everything that I'd witnessed over the past two and a half months. I'd reached the point where I didn't want revenge or compensation or even demand that he be fired. I just wanted to get away from him. But in order to do that, I needed a valid reason so that management would be convinced. One reason? Well, how about a hundred? Kevin took over and proceeded east along Interstate 90 towards Idaho. As was my habit by this point, I rode shotgun upon first leaving out at first. I'm still in the jump seat when we reach Snotqualmie Pass. Apologies if that's pronounced horribly incorrectly, it probably is. In my opinion, there are three critical skills that all drivers must learn if they want to last long enough in the industry to make any real money. Navigation, backing up with a trailer, and going down a long, steep mountain grade fully loaded up. Going up a mountain might be slow and arduous. Going down can quickly turn deadly. 
If a driver doesn't control the speed during the descent, he will find himself behind the wheel of a runaway death machine. To make the situation more difficult, the brakes of the truck can overheat and completely fail if overused, making the loss of control inevitable. If you've ever driven through mountains and seen runaway truck ramps, that's exactly what they are for. A pre-selected crash scene. Wow, I did not know a runaway truck ramp was a thing. That's scary, but I guess shows how often or the potential this does happen. Most trucks now have a feature called engine brakes, more commonly known to truck drivers as Jake brakes. Unlike the typical wheel brakes, engine brakes cause the truck to slow down by restricting airflow in the engine. This causes the engine to add resistance in the drivetrain and serve as a sort of drogue chute. Also, unlike wheel brakes, engine brakes will not overheat or fail from overuse. When used properly, they can make going down a mountain grade far more efficient and safe. The use of engine brakes also happens to be one of the issues that Kevin and I disagreed upon. While I had been properly instructed by my trainer on how to use the engine brakes effectively, Kevin was adamantly opposed to them. He wasn't shy about voicing his disapproval of my using them, but there was very little he could do about it. His opinion wasn't due to some rational reason, it was simply because the company's safety department said so. During post-training orientation, the course presenters often had made a major issue about how engine brakes weren't that useful and that they wished they didn't come with the trucks. I later learned that these presenters were drivers who mostly quit within two months. Sorry, I need to inter interject here. This company just sounds awful. How can presenters be drivers who mostly quit within two months? How is that allowed? Anyway, OP says, I learned from my trainer, a 30-year trucking veteran, that engine brakes were a lifesaver. That's the difference right there. Now, Kevin, being the sycophant he was, believed that anything the company higher-up said was the gospel truth. And there we were. Myself, Kevin, a fully loaded truck, and the long, steep decline that was Snoqualmie Pass. Yep, I said to myself, I'm definitely regretting my life choices right now. Kevin starts down the pass. He was in top gear and the truck begins to accelerate rapidly. Since he's not using the engine brakes, the only way he can control the truck's speed without overusing the wheel brakes is to downshift. In order to do that, he must reduce speed. Shifting gears in a semi is a lot different than a regular car, since a truck transmission will only go into gear if it and the engine are at the proper speed for the gear being selected. Kevin slams on the brakes, throwing everything in the cab that isn't tied down forward. He tries to downshift, but his timing is off. For a few heart-stopping seconds, the truck is essentially dropping down the side of a mountain in a free fall before Kevin finally manages to wrestle the truck into gear with another whiplash brake check and a grinding protest from the transmission. The engine revs up sharply as it fights against gravity and the excess speed for the gear. Kevin again applies extremely heavy braking and I grab the handhold above me and push myself back into the seat to cushion the jolts. At this point, I look over at the dash tachometer. It's reading over 1,700 RPM. The normal operating range for this truck is between 1,000 and 1,500 RPM. Slowing down and reducing the engine speed is vital at this point. Even Kevin knew that. He does, applying heavy braking again to slow the engine to just under 1,500 RPM, and the speed appears to be relatively stable. Then, in a move that I can only describe as divine stupidity, Kevin forces the transmission into the next lower gear. And when I say forced, I mean the truck was actively fighting him as if it were an animal raging in a trap. The gears of the transmission were grinding so hard, I thought they'd be worn down before we reached the bottom of the hill. 
Eventually, however, Kevin's stubborn determination won out and the truck went into gear. The truck screamed in protest. I glance at the tachometer and it's showing close to 2000 RPM way outside the operating limits. Too much of this and the engine will literally tear itself apart. I knew. What does Kevin do? Nothing. God damn it, I scream at him. Trying, trying to make myself heard over the tortured engine. Slow down. Don't tell me how to drive. Kevin snaps back. Apparently, he believes this is normal. I swear to God, Kevin, if you wreck this truck, my sentence was cut off by yet another hard break. And I'm wondering if I can stab this little idiot, take over the truck and claim self-defense. We went down that long, steep hill for what felt like hours. The screaming engine begged for mercy and Kevin was completely oblivious. At any moment, I was expecting the engine to explode in a fiery death, taking us to hours a few moments later. But to its credit, it held on just long enough. We get to the bottom of the hill and the stress on both the engine and my nerves finally dissipates. At first, I think we dodged yet another bullet. The truck seems to be no worse for the wear and I managed not to kill Kevin. At that moment, the dashboards light up more than the annual Christmas tree at Rockefeller Plaza. Every warning light and alarm buzzer is going off as if we were in a movie helicopter that had just been hit by a rocket. I swear under my breath and begin looking at my phone for repair shops, truck stops, or anywhere nearby where we can get help. And then, as suddenly as it started, the dash goes quiet and the lights turn off. It wasn't a relief, more of the eerie quiet. That's not good. I say, knowing this wasn't some electronic glitch. I go back to my phone. It's the only thing I can do to keep me from snapping Kevin's neck. By some obscene stroke of luck, there's a dealership service shop at the next exit. It was just then that the dashboard lights and alarms make an encore appearance. I think something's wrong with the truck, Kevin said, as if I hadn't already worked out that much for myself. I give Kevin my hardest glare. No shit, Sherlock, I reply. You just fell off a freaking mountain and blew the engine up. Uh, what do we do? He asked like a lost little boy. I take this moment to highlight his stupidity. I don't know, super trucker. You're the one who knows everything. Why don't you tell me? To say my nerves were frayed at this point would be a gross understatement. Kevin keeps looking between the road and the dash. I can tell he's lost, confused, and clueless. Just then, the engine derates, essentially limiting its speed and horsepower in order to prevent further damage. Something is seriously wrong, and Kevin is completely useless. Next exit, I say. There's a dealership shop. Kevin nods nervously. He rounds a bend and the exit comes inside. Despite the truck's reduced speed, Kevin is about to blow right past, something he can't very well afford to do. Kevin, exit now, I say. Uh, here? He asks, unsure. Now, I scream, at this point not even trying to be civil. Kevin takes the exit breaking extremely hard again to get slow enough so as not to overturn the truck. I can see the sign for the dealership and I guide Kevin to it. We pull into the parking lot just moments before the truck dies. Charmed life, I think. I turn to Kevin and I say, you, send dispatch a message. Tell them where we are and that we're checking into the shop. I'll go and talk to them. He doesn't get a chance to protest as I jump out and head inside. The techs run a diagnostic and find a long list of fault codes. I have to coordinate between dispatch and the shop because the company maintenance overseer knew nothing about trucks and Kevin was completely useless. And I find out that the truck will need to be in the shop overnight. They reluctantly agree to spring for a hotel room within walking distance 
and we go and check in kevin and i spent about three days in that hotel while the truck was being repaired kevin by virtue of his short-term memory problems had completely forgotten about how it was all his own doing he gave some speech about how dangerous engine brakes were but i reminded him that he was the one who was driving when the truck broke down he tried to pass the blame but it didn't matter i had a more important task to focus on if you ever needed or wanted to know how to make a rigid corporate structure act in your favor you might want to take notes i've been gathering evidence against kevin for about two weeks before we broke down in those two weeks i've been able to gather enough problems against him that would make a district attorney green with envy i divided my time between copying my notes to email and jotting down new items as they cropped up it was tedious as the list never seemed to go down but eventually the email was ready the only question that remained was who exactly would get the email normally i'd simply email my fleet manager like one would a supervisor the problem was such a major issue would need nearly every department in the loop the only problem was the company was strictly compartmentalized and often territorial it wasn't uncommon to get messages from three or four department heads for one minor infraction for example when i had to request fuel back in indiana i had to explain why to the route planning manager the fleet fuel controller and the planning department in addition to my supervisory fleet manager not only was this incredibly ineffective and annoying it did provide insight into how the system could be manipulated for all its segmented nature there was one department that had full authority over any other that was the safety department since every trucking company must take safety seriously the safety managers are taken very seriously more often than not, a safety manager held more power than the CEO and was the one department who could rally the others to a cause. My plan was to send emails to the heads of every department that had jurisdiction over any of Kevin's violations. Hours of service, planning, HR, driver training. Each department head would get the email. In addition, my fleet manager and the safety manager would get the exact same email. With any luck, one of the emails would trigger an investigation, the findings of which would start a chain reaction. At best, the safety manager would order every department to look into the matter. What I was careful not to do was to come off as accusatory or demanding. My philosophy has been to assume ignorance before malevolence. That is, assume that the company simply wasn't aware of what was going on. And if I demanded that Kevin was fired, I would risk coming across as bitter and spiteful, accomplishing nothing. No, my emails would be professional, concise, detailed, and presented in a way that would say, hey, I found these problems and I wanted to bring them to your attention. The issues themselves would cause the panic. It was during this breakdown that I put the finishing touches on my plan. I dug through the company directory for the relevant emails, organized the documents and photos in the email, and arranged the list of violations by the relevant departments. If and when an investigation took place, all they'd have to do is look where I pointed. I'd nearly completed the email during the three-day downtime while awaiting repairs. The day the truck was repaired, Kevin and I went to the shop a few hours before the truck was released. When the text told us it was ready, I was surprised that Kevin offered to sign it out and take the first shift of the day. It was uncharacteristically generous of him, which I found suspicious, but I didn't say so. I decided to make a restroom stop before we left out. On the way out of the door, I walked by the service desk. The tech who worked on our truck was finishing up the ticket and waved me over. Hey, he said, somewhat bewildered. Aren't you with that short guy with the limp? Yeah, why do you ask? I reply. Well, he asked a weird question. 
I took a deep breath. I had a feeling what that question would be. Let me guess. He was asking about the engine brakes. The tech was taken aback. Yeah, he wanted to know how to disable them. I thought it was weird because why would anybody want to do that? I shake my head in disgust and I glance to make sure that Kevin isn't in the room. Did you tell him? Heck no, the tech admitted. You'd be an idiot not to have them. I nod in agreement. By the way, I ask, what actually was wrong with the truck? There were some cracks in the turbocharger housing, he explained. Uh Uh-huh. And would keeping the engine at 2000 RPM all the way down Snoqualmie cause that? He looked at me knowingly. You better tell somebody about him if he can't drive any better than that. Oh, don't worry. I assure him. I will. And there we go. That concludes this episode and part six of this story. Little bit of a cliffhanger, I've got to say. I cannot wait to see the response to that email. And I really hope that you do send it off, OP, in part seven. But of course, all of that is to come guys make sure you are subscribed with notifications on or you're followed whatever platform you're on press the button so you know when i release the next episode you're not going to want to miss it we've got part seven eight and nine still to go i'm not sure how many episodes that's going to be but we're coming to the end now make sure that you're up to date i will say though that was probably the most i guess kind of stressful episode or, or part so far i can just picture like you know you guys just going down in a massive truck at breakneck speed you've got this guy next to you that has no idea what he's doing saying nah actually i don't want to use engine braking i'll just smash the brakes myself we'll leave it in a gear too high and just absolutely pummel the brakes causing them probably to burn out i don't know i don't really know too much about automobiles but yeah i can imagine Ugh, must have been absolutely terrifying for you op Well done for getting through it, that's all I can say. But there we go, guys. That is going to do it for this one. If you haven't seen any of the other episodes so far, then why have you watched this one and listened to this the whole way through? That's kind of weird. It's still a good story, though, on its own, I will say, actually. You know what? I take that back. I take that back. This can be listened to on its own. Actually, that's why why it's probably quite a good selection of stories. But yeah, I mean, it is probably preferable and and ideal to go and listen to the other ones first. Uh, if If you're not here, by the way, at the exact day this is released, and you're on YouTube, then there might already be an episode up here. The next one could be here already. You'd be in luck if it's there. If not, look at the description down below or just subscribe to the channel. Click the follow button and I'll see you with the next episode. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.